our service where we review one simple truth that we believe as Christians. Um, I, I recognize there is a lot of videos and announcements today. We have a lot going on, which is exciting, so I won't take too long. Um, but this is the truth for today. We're, we're coming to the end of the year, so we reviewed all these truths, and now we're asking, so what? What do we do with all these beliefs? Why do they matter? And so here's the question for this week and the next couple is, knowing all that we know about who God is and who we are to him, now what? How should we live? And this is how we begin to answer that question. It's this. Until Jesus returns, all of Jesus' followers must live by the Spirit. Our lives are guided, empowered, arranged, and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about what that means and what that looks like. But for this week, I just want to leave you with this. What that means is this. The Holy Spirit is not some force, some distant supernatural entity. The Holy Spirit is a person. And so the Christian life at its core involves our relationship with a person, namely God. And, and so that's what I want to leave you with today. I encourage you to take home to what we believe and, and discuss it as a family or group um, more. Uh, have, we have more questions and Bible readings to help guide you in that. But if you are one of our younger ones with us today, if you're in third grade or younger, I invite you to join Mr. Rod at the back and he will take you to Children's Church uh, for today. So, um, while the kids are joining them, we ha actually have a video of one of our partnerships and so we go ahead and play that.
Good morning. This is, uh, this is, uh, this Sunday is recognized as the uh, Orphan Sunday. And uh, we in many churches throughout the world are uh, promoting orphan uh, adoption. Uh, kids who are maybe not orphaned in a technical sense, they may have a father and mother, but they uh, are in a very needy situation uh, in countries, as you saw, a great need in many places. The wonderful thing about Global Fingerprints, which is, operates under the arm of the mission, uh, mission arm of Evangelical Free Church, is that uh, it not only helps kids in a humanitarian sense, you saw the type things, a schooling, food, medic, medic, medication, things like that, uh, but also uh, the emphasis is on taking the gospel to uh, all peoples. And so we at the Bible Church here have been focusing on unreached people groups, places where there is no church, places where they don't talk about Jesus, there's no church you can go to. And, uh, so in past years we've focused on Indonesia, and uh, I asked them for some cards for some kids from Indonesia this year, and they said, you know, we don't have any. I said, well, uh, the church has, uh, I know over the years, has uh, adopted 16 kids, this church here. So, uh, but I, so I don't know if that was a good problem or a bad problem, but uh, they didn't have any. So I said, how about India? We have work in India. Uh, we also send our pastors over and, and uh, elders to teach other elders and train them in India, which is a place with many unreached people, groups, uh, tribes that have never heard of Jesus. So, uh, we are focusing on India this year, and I think I have seven seven cards out on the table out, just outside the door there. Uh, if you're interested, I think it's $39 a month. Pay that however you want, monthly or annually, however you want. There's all kinds of information back there on the table. Cindy and I will be out there at the table right after, if you want to pick one up, if you want to sponsor a child. In fact, the first four people that sponsor a child, we have uh, T-shirts and uh coffee mug out there I think but for uh, but there's all kinds of pens and stickers you can take a sticker you know you know kids like stickers right and you can put them on your banjo case and all kinds of stuff you know, and uh, uh, find places for those stickers there's also chocolate out there I don't know yeah. Cindy the chocolate disappeared yet there's still chocolates out there so there's chocolate so be sure to stop by the table and say hi and grab a pen or a chocolate or something and check it out and consider perfectly consider when you your family or group uh, could uh, sponsor a child. Thank you. So, um, along with Global Fingerprints, it's one way that we as a church are trying to partner with the global church beyond just Chillicothe, but then for the world to, to reach people where they're at, their physical needs, but also to show them the gospel and disciple them so that they then take that gospel and pass it on to others, pass it on to others which is the goal. Another way we do that, though, um, so that is an ongoing thing that you would commit to. Um, more of a short-term one we do every time this time of year. So uh, you already heard announced about Samaritan uh, Purse. Um, we actually have a quick video about that as well. So if you're interested in helping out, we show that now. I promise they're cheering. Oh, okay, so there's no volume? 
why don't we do this? We'll pause it for this week. We'll play it again next week if we can get that figured out. But I, I encourage you there, uh, if you go online, you can find out more about this as well. It's a great opportunity. And if you have questions, as always, see uh, Lynn Bergman. She can kind of tell you a little bit more about what that's out and how to help. Uh, for, the, uh, for this week, though, we are starting a new series. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, so go ahead and turn there. Um, and what we're doing is from here until the end of the year, we're going to be exploring these first couple chapters of Luke, uh, which in, during the season, we always explore the birth story of Jesus from one of the books, uh, one of the four Gospels. Uh, and, and we're starting a little early this year, so we can have time to really look at Luke. And so that's what we're doing today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Um, but before we fully dive into that, I thought it'd be helpful for you guys to know, who is this Luke guy anyways, right? We've just done this whole overview of the, of the Bible, and we saw right here at the climax the Jesus story, which fulfills all of the Old Testament and launches us into the rest of the Bible. And there's four, four stories about Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. Um, who is this Luke guy, though? And why does he get to write one of these four accounts of Jesus' life, right? If you're paying close attention, you notice that he's not, he's not one of the 12 disciples. In fact, only two of the gospel writers are. You have Matthew and you have John. But who is Luke or Mark even, right? Uh, I, I love to tell the story about Mark. We're not doing that today. Um, but if you have questions, I love talking about Mark. I find that interesting who he is. Just a short preview some people think that if you're reading Mark's story towards the end of the gospel, you have this picture when Jesus is arrested of a young man who gets so terrified he runs away, they grab him by the clothes and rip it off, but he's so scared he just keeps running naked through the, through, um, the trees and the, and the streets and everything, and, and some people think that is Mark. But that's beside, we're on Luke today. Who is this Luke character? Uh, and so... Luke is actually very interesting. We see uh, where Luke comes into the story as we're reading what he wrote. If you're reading through Luke in his second book, Acts, and you get all the way to Acts chapter 16, I want you to pay close attention. Up to this point, Luke is describing the narrative as they did this, they did this, they did this. I want you to hear this, though. So Luke, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 16, verse 8 to 10 says this. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Tros. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And, and Paul had seen the vision. Immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that called, God had called us to preach the gospel. What just happened there? All of Acts, you have they, they, they. And now you have we. This is where Luke joins the story. He's not intrusive. The story is not about him, but he becomes an eyewitness at this point. Later, from Paul's writings, we learn a little more about Luke. In Colossians 4, 11 through 14, Paul, who is in jail, is writing about um, some of the people who are with him, who have joined him. And this is what he says, starting in verse 11 from Colossians 4. And Jesus, who is called Justice, the, these are the only men of the circumcision. So he just talked about two guys, and they are the only ones of circumcision. Means what? Means they're Jewish. Then we keep reading. Um, they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who knows the Colossian church, and he keeps going and keeps going. And then it says, Epaphras is one of you, always struggling on your behalf by his prayers, for I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and in Heracopolis. And then Luke, 
the beloved physician preaches. So we learn two things about Luke. He is a Gentile. He is not one of the circumcised. Which is fascinating because Luke wrote most of the New Testament. You might think that's all, but as, as Joe pointed out and you pointed out before, no, it's Luke. And so of all the writers of the entire Bible, Luke is the only one we know for certain he's a Gentile. And he wrote most of the New Testament, which should tell you something about how the God of Israel has always intended, and at this point working out, so he would be the God of all nations. And so you have a Gentile writer, which I think is fascinating. The other thing that will be important for this week, he is a physician. He is educated, he is detailed, he is learned, and that's going to make an impact. So this week we look at Luke chapter 1. And what the section we're looking at is Luke explaining why he wrote this gospel. At this point, there are already other people who have attempted to write about Jesus' life. There's other stories going around. Why does Luke sit down to write the gospel of Luke and then Acts? He actually says it right at the very beginning. And here's the thing. As Christians, we believe that this is not primarily the work of the human author, but it is the writing of the Holy Spirit. This this um, intersection between the human and the divine right, is what the scripture is. So these are also the very words of God. And so the Holy Spirit decides to put into a book, says this is why it's being written. That should inform how we read the book. right? And so let's pay close attention to this. So I invite you to stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. And we see why is this gospel written? So this is what it says. Luke Chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among them, just as though who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Father, I pray that as we study your word closely today, you would give us certainty about the things that you have been taught, that we approach your scripture, and that in it we see the certainty of the truth you've given to us, and that impacts us, and we learn to trust you as we live our lives. So I pray all this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. You can be seated. So what is going on in the beginning of Luke chapter 1? So you have this Gentile believer who has traveled with Paul for a while, who is an educated man, pays close attention to details, and he goes, listen, I've seen all these other stories about Jesus. I know people have tried writing it down. That may or may not include the other Gospels. It could have been other people writing stuff as well. But what the Holy Spirit helped write are these four Gospels. And Luke says, I want to write as well. And there's a reason for it. And he writes to this man called Theophilus. Now, there's two theories. Uh, Theophilus just means lover or friend of God. And so some say, oh, he's just writing generally to all the friends, all those who love God. Um, which may be true, um, but I tend to think that it's more that he's writing to a man called Theophilus based on how he addresses them as most excellent. And it mirrors this kind of patron um, uh, relationship. In other words, in the Old in uh, past times when someone wanted to do arts or writing or something else, uh, they could make money off that, so they had a more wealthy patron who 
gave them what they needed to produce this piece of art or literature or whatever. And I think that's what's going on. But for our purposes, it doesn't matter too much because whether it was written originally just to Theophilus, it wasn't intended just for him. It passed through the churches and then on to us. So yes, in a sense, it is written to those who love God and are friends of God. But why is it written? What is his purpose? And we see that in the very last verse, verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so what I want to do today is I want to walk through why we can trust the Bible. Why can we be certain that what we have is, in fact, the word of God and it is reliable in some ways, that may feel like preaching to the choir for many of you. You believe it, right? Isn't that enough? Um, and I'm going to go into details on certain questions and criticisms that people have of the Bible and why we still trust it. And, and here's ultimately the reason why. We are not just talking about some book. We're talking about the Bible. Um, just, uh, just yesterday, me and Nicole took a trip. Uh, we do that every now and again. We take a short day trip or so, and we were in Chicago. And I was looking through this parking garage, and I saw these three ropes hanging from one of the skyscrapers kind of moving. I'm like, oh, what's going on? And I walk up, and I see these three crazy persons hanging from the ropes, swiping the windows back and forth, moving very confidently. They look very comfortable on these ropes, and they're in the middle of this skyscraper, which is just crazy to me. But here's the thing. Me, as an outside observer, um... And the person hanging from the rope are very different relationships to the rope, right? It might be, <laughs> it might be very beneficial, like from just a general I care about people standpoint on how that rope stands and holds up. But for the person who puts their full weight on it and hangs many, many feet in the air, they care very much on whether it will hold them. And what I want to show you today is this. The fact of the matter is that following Jesus is not easy at times. It will be costly. It will be painful. And there will be times where you need to know with absolute certainty that it will hold. And that's what I want to show you today. That the Bible is what it claims to be. The very inerrant word of God. And it can hold you. So that's why we are going to look at this today. So, what are some of these objections that you or other people may have? About the Bible. We're going to look very closely at the one Luke specifically is addressing, but I wanted to start off actually with one that is somewhat unique to us, probably wasn't as big of an issue in Luke's day, and that is this. How do we know that this is actually what was written? That this is from Luke, this is from Mark, this is from the biblical writers, and what we have is actually the scripture. And first off, I want to address a couple of kind of not actually sound arguments, but they come up occasionally by people who don't actually know much about the study of Scripture and about what goes into it. But what happens, I think, is a lot of Christians don't really stop to think sometimes, how did the Bible get from Luke's pen into this? How did it get from Paul's pen into this, where they're bound together and here in readable English to us today? They don't know the process. And so when people put objections, they're like, oh, I don't know, that sounds like it could be legit. But they aren't. And so the first objection I want to talk about is 
Sometimes people critique the Bible and they say, oh, the Bible went from Greek to Latin to German to French, and now only today is with you in English. It went from translation to translation. It's such a jumbled mesh. How can you possibly know what it said? That's such a ridiculous argument for anyone who knows how Bible translations are made. Um, I have one, by the way. I have a Greek Bible that translators use. It was given to me a while back. Um, and here's how translations are made. You go to the Greek or the Hebrew in the Old Testament, you translate it into the language. Some translations are just modified previous translations, where they take a translation work that's already been done, and they go back to the Greek or the Hebrew and say, well, how do we update this to modern language? Okay? But here's the point. It doesn't go language to language to language. It goes from Greek and Hebrew to the English. Or if you're a French speaker, to the French. That's how translations actually work. It's not a valid criticism. And so English people might say, oh, but look at all the different translations that you have. They all disagree. No, they don't disagree. Almost all. There are some weird ones out there, by the way. If you want to know what they are, I'll tell you. But for the most part, the translations we have are incredibly accurate. Why do they disagree? Well, it's because you can't take one word in one language and translate directly into another, right? So the translators struggle and say, how do we best communicate this in English? And sometimes they word it slightly differently. And, and by the way, this is just good advice to you if you are deeply studying a passage, right? I, if you're just trying to read through the Bible, read through the Bible. That's fine. Um, but if you're, you're picking a, one passage to study deeply, open up multiple translations. And, and don't just pick your favorite. Instead, go, okay, what is this trying to say in general? And it might help you avoid some common errors of just saying, oh, I understood it this way, but actually it looks like they mean something else. That's what happens with translations. Another common thing you hear, I call the Da Vinci Code conspiracy theory, is that somehow some monks decided that they were going to invent the stories of Jesus and completely change the Bible, and that's what we have today, is the product of people who made it up, right? All right, here's the thing, and we're going to talk about this in more detail in a little bit. The amount of ancient manuscripts that we have from the Bible that are all over the known world from that time, across country, not even just the Roman Empire, but even outside of its boundaries, in different languages, the amount of coordination that these persecuted, not even monks yet, but these per persecuted scribes would have had to have to meet together and try to make a Bible of their own invention is it is, would be quite a miraculous in and of its own, right? It is highly, highly, highly unlikely. In fact, I would say very much not true at all. There's nothing to that. Because here's the thing, even the best late conspiracy theories, even even uh, the ones like today, those who, those, if this is your conspiracy theory, I'm not, I don't want to debate this, but if you don't believe we actually landed on the moon, you can actually point to evidence, right? I might disagree with you that that's what it says, but you can point to stuff. You know what you can't point to? Evidence that there was a conspiracy to change the scripture. It's not there, right? What we have is the scripture. So on one hand, you have people who claim, okay, the scripture, people just coordinated and made it sound so good. And then on the other hand, you have people say, oh, there are so many different versions of the Bible out there. How do you know which one is true? And that's what I want to address. Okay, that's the first thing I want to address, because one of the common sayings out there is this. if you look at all the different ancient texts of the Bible, there's more variations 
than there are words in the Bible. And here's the thing, that's actually true, right? Which might sound shocking at first, but often when that statement is given, it is not given with context. So I want to do that today. And I want to ask this question, how do we look at an ancient manuscript and figure out what it says? So in the days before there was a, a printing press, the day before there were computers, and when scribes were writing it down and they made spelling errors and, ch and changes, how do we know what the original actually says? And that's a field of study called textual criticism. What you do is you take these ancient manuscripts, you compare it, you see which is most likely, you see what time these changes were made, and you find the original text. And most ancient manuscripts, you have a, a pretty good amount, like about the size of this, this pulpit here of, of documents. And, and you can, through that, sift through it, do some hard work, and find pretty closely what it says. Now, where does the Bible fall into this with textual criticism? How many documents do we have? And do we know what it says? So, I want to show you the first image here. Here are just some histories and some writings that we have. Um, the most, the mo these are the ancient documents that we have the most of, okay? So you'll see Homer's Iliad there in the middle. That's a lot. We have a lot of that. We're pretty sure we know what it says. But I want to draw your attention to the two on the left. You see, the Bible has so many ancient documents that we actually had to make two graphs. One for those in the original Greek and those that were translated into other languages very early on. Why is this important? You'll notice that the rest do not compare. I heard um, the guy by the name of Daniel Wallace, who is a... a textual critic. He was fluent in the Greek. And he made this comparison. While most of our documents would not, would stack up to the pulpit for us, if you took all of the documents of the Bible together, to compare that, you would need to stack on several Empire State buildings. In other words, we have so many documents. It's not even comparable. You know how miraculous that is, that of all the and all of history that we have, what we have, and it's not even close when it comes to the Bible, it's weeks and months more. If put side by side, you wouldn't even really see the other manuscripts, even if stacked on top of each other, you wouldn't even see it compared to what we have of the Bible, which is good news because when you have so much, suddenly to say that there are more variants than there are words in the New Testament doesn't seem like that much comparatively and you realize how much we have. Secondly, I want to talk about what it means to have a difference between one text and another. Oh, I know it sounds academic, but this is where many critics of the Bible attack because the Bible is so important. So you put up the next slide. What do we mean by there's a change from one text to another? Well, the by far vast majority of those changes are spelling errors. And we know they're spelling errors. This word, it added an extra letter or not. In fact, among the most common spelling letters is what is called a movable new. So in English, we, we say an apple, not a apple. In, in Greek, it's sort of like that. You have this letter, it sounds like an N, and often it has a tendency for scribes to just drop it off. And that's the most common spelling error. And so you have these spelling errors where you know what the text says. The second one are not meaningful variations. And you might be thinking, well, who gets the side not meaningful? This is what I mean by not meaningful. All right, take a simple sentence. John loves Mary. In English, 
We care a lot about the order if you change it to Mary loves John. That is a very different sentence. In Greek, though, the way you determine how a word interacts with the sentence is not the word order. You can have John loves Mary, Mary loves John, loves Mary John, loves John Mary, or any variation of the word, and it means the exact same thing. In addition, we have the, the word the in English, which is used to indicate something specific, right? Now, you don't put that on a proper name. In Greek, you can or you can't. It doesn't matter. So you can say the John loves the Mary, the John loves Mary, John loves the Mary, and change all the orders, and it means the exact same thing. Are you getting why we say not meaningful? And there are many other factors and that can go into this, and all this is to say is any scribe can change up any of those things and you know exactly what it says. In addition, you have names that are spelled differently. My wife, Nicole, hates it when people spell her name with an H, understandably so. It's not Nicole, she says, it's Nicole, right? Um, and, and if we were interacting with John or Mary, we wouldn't want to spell it differently. It would be rude, but for our case in the Bible, John, for instance, is sometimes spelled with one. The equivalent is not, you don't need to know the Greek letter, but it's the equivalent of one N where sometimes two. Either one says the same thing. So that is the next amount of variance. And then three, the one after that, not viable. And what that means is this. We know when the change happened, it's obvious that it happened. We can dismiss it as not being the original because it's very easy to understand. Okay, that is making up close to 98% of all these variations, which is a lot. Suddenly, that more variations than words in the Bible seems a lot smaller. But as Christians, we know this. Every single word, every jot and tittle in the Bible matters. So you might be looking at that last one and be worried and concerned, and you should be. But I want to talk about what it means to be both meaningful and viable for a second. And I'll give you one example of that. So coming from... Mark 9.29, uh, the disciples just tried to cast out a demon, and, and they were unable, so Jesus tells them this. In the ESV, Mark 9.29, it says, And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And, and most would say that's probably what it means, but there's this feeling out there that it's possible. Most scholars are like, I don't think it is, but it's, it's possible, and that is it. This is the variant. I'll read it. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Is that a meaningful change? Yes, the meaning of the sentence changed. Is that important? If you're casting out demons, it's very important, right? You'll want to know. And my advice is just do both just in case, okay? <laughs> right? But does it affect the heart of Christian belief? And what you'll find is, well, no. Is it important? Yes. Do we want to find hard what the Bible actually says? Absolutely. But as an external critique to dismiss the Bible, it doesn't really stand. And, and so are there changes, are there variants in all of these texts that we don't know if it's actually an accurate one, a viable one, and it changes Christian doctrine? Is there any in all these skyscrapers of changes? And the answer is no. Nothing fundamentally changes the doctrines of the Bible. None of our doctrines, none of our beliefs, especially the core beliefs of the gospel, are changed by any single one of these areas. But guess what? You don't have to take my word. 
One of my favorite things to do, there's a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman who makes his money off of trying to dissuade people of the reliability of the Bible. He's wrote such books as Misquoting Jesus, The God Problem, Why God Doesn't Answer Our Fundamental Question, The Problem of Evil. And so you get the idea. He's not a fan of Christianity. Um, I don't think he would call himself a Christian at the very most. He makes his money off of saying the Bible is not reliable. And so an interviewer, a friendly interviewer who's pressing him, is like, oh, I wonder. He's like, so with all of these changes in the Bible that you talk about, what do you think it actually teaches? And that interviewer got a bit of a surprise because, though Bart Ehrman does make his money off talking about all the changes in the Bible, he was forced to be honest here. And this is a direct quote from him of what he says. Let me make sure I find it so I'm quoting him exactly here. Um, okay. In summary, the position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position. That, and here's the important part, the central Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. In other words, this is one of the fundamental critics of the scripture saying that this book right here, although there are variants in the ancient text, what it teaches is fundamentally what it always taught. You can be sure what you have is the Bible and that what it teaches is Christian doctrine from the very beginning till now. And so with all these accusations leveled at the Bible, it's important for you to know you can trust that what this says is actually what it has always said. That's a big news, right? Because here's the thing. When you are put to the test and you are suffering because of your faith in Christ for whatever reason, and and it comes right down to it, I, I'm not just going to obey a book that I think might or might not be right just because, hey, let's roll the dice. I need to know this is the word of God or I'm not following it when it gets down to it. And you can. You can know that. But let's move on. Okay, so it said what it always said. But why should we trust what it said in the first place? And this, Luke actually addressed it. Why should we trust that what happened in the Bible actually happened? That it was not made up? That, that these original 12 disciples, that they didn't just make up their own religion? Why can we trust that? And first off, there's the obvious one. Why would these 12 men make up a whole new religion that ended up getting almost all of them killed. That's the obvious one. But that's not all we have. You see, Luke says this. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to us. In other words, these are eyewitnesses of the events written down, delivered to the first Christians, and passed on to us. Why is that significant? Because they're not talking about some fable or myth from the past. They're talking about what they've seen and touched and experienced. You see this several times throughout the New Testament. Where they say, I give you what I have touched and what I have seen. First Peter says that. Right? This is significant. But you're like, well, maybe they made it up. Here's the thing you should read closely when you're reading the New Testament. When you're reading these Gospels, what you'll start to notice is they mention a lot of names. And yeah, they mentioned kings and other things to help date it and set it in history. They also mention a bunch of historical nobodies. Mentioned one time in the Bible, never again. And they're not someone who would have ever been written upon. They're just some carpenter or farmer or whatever. Why even include it? 
Why waste the words? But we are reading as 21st century readers. Put yourself back in the first century. You just heard about this God who became man, who did all of these miracles and fulfillment of century-old prophecies, who was murdered and rose again. What is your question? That sounds... I don't know, is that true? And so what you do when you're writing the gospel is you mention these things. You're like, okay, don't trust me. Go ask. Go ask Mary or John or Demetrius. Go ask these people. And so you don't just have eyewitnesses. You have eyewitnesses who are sharing their accounts in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And you know what you do not have from the first century? What you do have is you have these gospel accounts and these letters telling about Jesus. You know what you do not have? Hey, these people are nuts. I was there. This didn't happen. I was there. Jesus didn't do a single miracle. He didn't raise someone from the dead. They mentioned his name for a reason. They mentioned Lazarus' name. People could go and talk to Lazarus. That's an incredibly powerful statement and explains why Christianity took off so fast in the first couple century. In other words, you can trust that what we have is the actual words of Scripture and you can trust what was written in them is true because they were written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. That's not all the proof they give. And in some senses, that's an argument of silence. Look, hey, I told you what happened. No one disputed me. And and, and that is an argument of silence. You don't want to put usually in, in big arguments, you don't want to wait, put too much weight on an argument of silence, even though that's a very loud silence, is it not? Hey, this person raised the dead. He fed thousands of people with a loaf of bread and two fish. Like that's things you put to the test and no dispute is incredibly powerful. But that's not all. The other thing they do, and, and Luke is especially good at that. Let me read it for his own words. Okay. Um, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. In other words, you have all these testimonies, eyewitness testimonies. You know it's certain, but I also want to add to that. And why should Luke add to it? He was not an eyewitness of Jesus. Why does he add to it? What does he add? And this is what it says. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you're reading the Gospels, what you'll find is the Gospel writers are telling you what happened, but oftentimes they don't necessarily follow strictly chronological order, which biographies don't do either. Sometimes we do thematically, right? Um, there, there are some important pieces, like they put the death, resurrection, all that at the end, because it wouldn't make sense otherwise, but their purpose is not to lay out a chronological event. But Luke is so meticulous about the details putting things in order. Not only does he do that, he mentions specific names, specific years to compare them to. He lists specific city names and specific titles and very, very, very detailed accounts. And what you have found throughout the centuries is that when you're looking at a history, you can tell whether it is accurate or not based on kind of these the details that it leaves. And Luke is so full of these details. And you can dismiss a historian if you're reading it and they misuse names that are from a later date or titles from a later date. You're like, ah, oh, they actually weren't during that time. They're writing later about what happened. 
which you might glean some stuff from it, but you know in your head, ah, this is written much later. So how does Luke stand up? Well, it turns out really, really, really well. Here's just some examples. In other Gospels, uh, the writers call Herod a king. Why? Because those at that time would have called him king if you're living in uh, kind of the Jewish-Palestine area. But you know what Luke calls him? He calls him a tetrach. And why he calls him a tetrach is because he was never actually promoted by the Roman Empire to the level of Augustus. It's a very specific name and title. And he's very consistent. He uses these correct titles that someone from a further distance who doesn't actually familiar with the details might mix up. He also lists very specific years that events happened that you can go back in history. Did this happen when he said it then? Or did he mix it up because he's not actually that intimate with the details? And it turns out again and again and again he's accurate. You look at the sailing that happens in the book of Acts and you go, well, how would have first century Mediterranean sailors done their route? And you find out actually everything he's describing sounds like someone who witnessed it firsthand. And he interviews, and you'd see him interview, for instance, Mary. And you know that because you're not just getting what happened to Mary, you're getting her internal thoughts in the back of Luke. And in fact, there have been times, often critics of scripture will go to Luke because he is the most detailed historian. They're like, there's so many details that if we find something in it that we can critique, then, well, you can dismiss it, right? Well, again and again they've gone, and again and again Luke has stood up to time. And in fact, several times when historians have thought, ah, I got it. This detail right here proves Luke didn't know what he was talking about. Over time, Luke proves to be correct. One instance of that that I will give you is this. So in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, Luke refers to Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, in the 13th year of Tiberius, which is around A.D. 27 or 28. And you're thinking, I don't recognize those names because they don't have a lot to do with the story. It's one of these small details Luke puts in. Why? So you can test what he is saying. This is the great thing about Luke. Why can you trust it? He puts so much in to say, prove me wrong. And, and when we go to this, the historians are like, ah, we only knew one Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene. And guess what? He died 50 years before Jesus was born. Luke had no clue what he's talking about. Until, after several years of teaching that, they made an archaeological discovery. And they found out that there was this Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, that, um, that lived, guess when? And around, that was made Tetrarch for the first time around AD 14 to 29. Now they're around the time that Luke is writing. And so Luke was correct even before historians realized it. The Bible is full of these details. It is. Why is this important? Because the Bible is not, is not telling us stories. It's telling us about real events that happen in real history that carry with them a significance of eternity. Do you understand that? The Bible must hold in every detail in order to put the full weight of our eternal destiny on it. And it does. Again and again and again. So as we're reading this, um, we have what we have here is this. Why can we trust the Bible? First off, is this is because we know first off what we have is actually the Bible. 
God has miraculously put so many manuscripts out there that it, it doesn't even, it's not even worth comparing them to how we know other ancient documents. He put so many out there that we can know for certainty what is written. Secondly, we can know for certainty what was written happened because they're written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And not just that, but as they are scrutinized by the historical details again and again and again and hold up. What you have before you is real events happening in real time. And here's my question. What are you going to do with it? I'll go back to that image of the skyscrapers for a second. As Christians, there are two things that we need to do with this information, right? The first one is this. I want you guys to use this when you're sharing the gospel to other people. Here's what you don't have to do. You don't have to be a great debater. You don't have to explain all the intricacies of textual criticism. You don't even have to explain as much as I gave, thankfully. Why? Because people aren't argued into Christianity, right? Uh, no one in the history of Christianity has been argued into it, right? God says that he has put enough of his information out there into the world that people are without excuse. He has made himself known. So what keeps people believing it is an internal heart issue. In their hearts, they refuse to believe it. And that's not something you can change. What are you called to do? You're called to share the gospel with them. Explain who Jesus is, the God-man who became a human being, who lived the perfect life that you can never live, who died for your sins and rose again so you can have eternal life. Share that with them. Then it's up to the Holy Spirit to learn how they respond. And all you do from that point is you pray for them. By the way, in some senses, I've said this a couple times, all you can do is pray for them. But thankfully, you can pray for them. That's a huge thing. But you may wonder, well, what about people who have genuine questions to faith? Because there are people out there. They say, listen, if I become a Christian, that changes everything. <laughs> and that's true, by the way. Um, some people use, the, it, it, it comes from a, a philosopher, this idea that like, well, What's it hurt to trust Jesus, right? If, if it's right, then you got everything to gain. If it's wrong, you haven't lost anything. And I, sometimes that might be a right place to use. I don't like using that because of this. Because if you're wrong, you have everything to lose. The Bible is clear on this. You do not escape an interaction with the gospel without dying to your old self. It uses the word dying for a reason. Your old self, your old desires, your old well of life, it has to die before you get a new one, and it costs everything. And so people are looking at that, and they're making this calculation. They're like, I don't know if I want to do that. I need to be certain that it's true. Don't dissuade that, because they're actually looking at it correctly. You are right. You do not get to be who you were after interaction with Jesus. You better count the cost. But here's the thing. It adds up. The Bible is absolutely true, and it absolutely will hold the full weight of that sacrifice. Yes, you will get back everything that you lost and then some. I can't guarantee you that your life will be full of happiness, that there won't be times where you'll be frustrated, angry, hurting, crying in your prayers, crying out to God in frustration. In fact, I encourage you to do that because the Christian life in the midst of the world is hard and full of pain. But here's the thing, and here is why this is so important. Because if you put the full weight of every single heartache and loss and things that you've had to suffer and all the pain that you have to endure in order to follow Jesus 
on the Bible, it still holds. No matter what you have to sacrifice, the reward is so infinitely better. So count the cost of what you have to lose. But know that the reward is so much greater. And so what do you need to know as a Christian? You need to know that there are answers. You don't have to be able to explain them in super detail. That's fine. You can point them to someone if they have super detailed questions. You can point them to someone who knows. Um, but you can also just say, hey, there are really good answers for this. And the Bible is incredibly reliable. And this is what the Bible says about the gospel. Will you accept it or reject it? And that, that's all your job is. You don't have to be a great debater or apologist. I just want you to know that. But two, this was written to a believer, as far as we can tell, and for believers. Why is it important for us to know this? And I want to give two examples from my own mind. Because here's the thing, the reason this is so important, that this holds, is because in the Christian life, there will be sacrifices, and there will be heartache, and you need to know with certainty that the Bible and the author of the Bible can hold all of that without cracking. You know that you can jump off that skyscraper with, a, with the rope and it's not going to fray on you, right? If you're telling me that the rope is frayed in certain areas, but most of it's still fine, I'm not going, okay? It's the same thing with the Bible. And so I, I remember when I was young, and I was I was a really good wrestler, right? I was nowhere near as good as I thought I could be, right? I thought I would be an Olympic medalist one day. I was never going to be that. But I was Division One wrestler. I was nationally ranked at times, right? I was good. And so here's the thing. From a very early age, my family decided that, yeah, maybe if I qualified for the second day of a national tournament, I could go and wrestle on a Sunday. But I would avoid all tournaments and practices and leagues that took me away from my church family on Sunday. That meant getting to practice with other nationally ranked wrestlers trained by Olympic caliber coaches. That meant that I was not as good a wrestler as I could have been. Okay? Why would we make that sacrifice? Well, the truth is this. Because the Bible says, if I could have, maybe I could have been that Maybe I could achieve every dream that I ever wanted. But had I lost my relationship with God and his body as a result, it wouldn't have been worth it. I can tell you another time, too. Many of you know that I was single for a long time when I came here. Uh, I loved being able to, to, at the youth group at the time, say, you can have a full and meaningful life, even if you're single for the rest of your life. Because that, for many teenagers, is their worst fear. <laughs> But, but here's the thing. I was not some monk, right? Now, that there was an impression of that because I told people I didn't have a TV. And here's the thing. I could watch TV on my computer. I didn't need a physical TV. I wasn't a monk, all right? I wasn't staying away from all romantic relationships, as is now shown, right? But here's the thing. Why was I still single at that point? I could have entered into many relationships that I wanted to enter into because I really liked that person. But I didn't because they weren't a follower of Jesus. Or they weren't on board with a life where I served in ministry. And to have done so would have been compromised. And here's the thing. If I wasn't certain that what the Bible says is true, I would not have been up for a life of singleness. But I can tell you right now, yes, it paid off in the end. Right? It paid off really, really well. But had I never met Nicole, 
Had I lived the rest of my life as a single man, never getting married, it would have still been worth it. Because the Bible is true. Do you understand that? This is why it's so important. There will be times in your life when you're following Jesus and it costs so much. Where your hopes and your dreams and everything you thought your future would be, you have to sacrifice to faithfully follow Jesus. What do you do with those moments? And this is what I encourage you to do. I encourage you to throw everything at it. To throw out to God all of your pain and all of your struggles and say, this is my problem with your word here and your Bible here. This is my questions and my doubts. Put it all on the line because it will hold. I'm not trying to say fake it. I'm not trying to say, oh, I just believe it and tell yourself again and again that you believe it. No, I'm saying test it. You understand the difference? Right? I'm not saying get your life together, smile, don't let people see the cracks. No, I'm saying let them show. Come to church when you're hurting, when you're mad at God, when you're angry, when you think that he has failed you. Show, show up again and again in your prayers and in the word when that happens. Yes, other people may judge you. I can't, I can't defend you against other people's sin. But guess what? They don't get the final say. Show up and put the Bible and the writer of the Bible to the test, and he will again and again and again save you. I can say that as someone who has done that multiple times. There, there are times where, yes, following Jesus is hard. And I, I've had a fairly easy life. I have not had to make the sacrifices that other Christians have had, where they've lost jobs and they've lost family where they've been beaten and they've lost their freedom and imprisonment. Some even lost their lives for the sake of the Bible. And a lot of you won't either. Some of you may have to make harder sacrifices, losing families or jobs. And that is not easy. That's not something I take lightly. But what I can tell you with absolute certainty is that it is worth it. That the Bible and its writer will hold. And so that's my encouragement for you today is this. As Christians, we are people of the Word because it is God's Word. And, and we need to read, not just as someone who finds these stories interesting or fun or intellectually stimulating. We need to read as people who are desperately holding on to a rope trying to see if it will hold. Search the Bible for all its depth. See who this God is who is making these powerful claims. When you have a hard time believing that your sacrifices are worth it, when this pain will eventually be worked out into your eternal happiness, when God, who is holy and just, could possibly forgive you for messing up for the hundredth time in the same sin, go to his word and put it to test. So with that, I want to close us in prayer as we continue to worship. But that's my challenge for you this week. When you search the Bible, search it for all it's worth. Put it to the test. See if it holds. See if it's accurate. See if it's worth putting the whole of your life onto it. I can say that because I know that it will. Father, thank you for giving us your word so that we might rely totally on you. Thank you for again and again and again showing us with more evidence than we could possibly hope to handle that your word is accurate and true and right. 
And I pray for our people here that we would put your word, we would put the full weight of our eternal destiny, all our hopes and dreams and pain and suffering onto its word and onto you so that we might see you 